Well, it's good to be with all of you today, and um, I count it a privilege to open up the Word of God with you. It's always a privilege to open up God's Word, understanding what it is as the revelation of our Creator to us is created. And so I'm grateful to Austin uh, for giving me the opportunity to, to speak to you today. I'm excited about our text. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're, we're going to look at just a few verses uh, from Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start in verse 19. I'll give you a second to get there. And then I'll read these verses and we'll jump into it. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, or brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Well, this is the very word of God, and it's immediately relevant for all of us in this room this morning. I wonder if any of you have had the experience that Ginger and I um, have been having more and more these days, where you've been been getting uh, questioned by uh, a five-year-old, my beautiful daughter, Felicity. Hi, baby. She's been asking a lot of questions recently. And I wonder if any of you have ever been interacting with a five-year-old and been asked a question that gave you some pause. And you thought, oh man, I'm in, tr- I'm in trouble. It happened to us uh, just a couple days ago. We were driving down the road and randomly Felicity goes, so then what is an atom made of? I'm trying to explain to her, like, the atom is the smallest, you know, divisible particle of matter, and, but then what makes up an atom? And so, frantically, in the front seat, Ginger's going, hey, Siri, uh, what are the subatomic particles? <laughs> Give us a second, baby. We're, we'll, we'll get back to you on that. Um, yesterday, she asked me, I, I was actually studying for this message, and I walked out of uh, my office, and she was playing in the playroom, and she looked up at me and just randomly said, Daddy, what happens when you trust in Jesus? How do I answer that? I wonder how you would answer my five-year-old daughter if she were to ask you, what happens when you trust in Jesus? It's a really simple, basic question, isn't it? But it's profound. One of the underlying assumptions of that question is, that something does happen. When you trust in Jesus, there's a change that takes place. 
there are effects of believing the gospel and coming to know Jesus. It was such a simple question. And then a few minutes later, uh, we, were, we were letting them, Saturdays is their, their day to watch shows. And so Felicity was watching a show and a SpongeBob commercial came up and she said, um, I don't know where she got this. We're not anti-SpongeBob, I promise. She turned to Evie Joe, her three-year-old sister, and said, oh, no, no, Evie, we don't watch SpongeBob. SpongeBob isn't trusting in Jesus. But, but that question had me thinking, and it's immediately relevant for our text because the gospel changes things. What does the gospel change? Well, you could say the gospel changes everything. And that's true, but, but can you help us be a little more specific? Well, the preacher to the Hebrews, this letter of the book of Hebrews was actually a sermon that was written down and then delivered to these struggling Christians. The preacher in these verses we just read answers that question. What happens when you trust in Jesus? And he shows us that because of the gospel, we can now draw near to God with confidence knowing that all of our sin has been paid for. We we now hold fast the hope of our faith, no matter what dark times or trials we encounter in this world. Because of the gospel, we hold fast to the promises of Jesus. And because of the gospel, we are set free to love God and others with a supernatural Grace-filled love. What happens when you trust in Jesus? You know, the, the people who would have received this original sermon and then letter really needed this message. Because these were Christians who were struggling with the faith. And they were actually being tempted to abandon the faith. These were some of the early followers of Jesus And those early days of following Jesus were exciting days. Here was our rabbi, our Messiah, who who made wine at the wedding, who gave food to the hungry, who touched lepers and made them well, who sat with sinners and and prostitutes and the, the low and the despised, and he cared for them, and he entered entire villages and healed the people, and he raised the dead and even raised himself from the grave, prophesying that he would be killed, and then he was killed, but the prophecy of which he spoke came true when three days later he rose, conquering the grave, and then interacted probably with some of these very Christians face to face. They saw him die, and then they were sitting there talking to him over breakfast or over a stew, and they, they believed in him, and it was exciting to believe in Jesus, those early days of conversion. Uh, soon, persecution came, and you can read about that through the book of Acts, but they didn't care because Jesus was worth it. However, now the years were going by. And remember Jesus said he was coming, coming again, he was going to come back. Where is he? And that initial burst of excitement and thrill for loving and following him was starting to wear thin as they looked back on the life they abandoned and started to miss it. 
rejected by their culture, rejected by their families, isolated and alone, and the Christians were really doubting. They were struggling with temptation, even apostasy, the temptation to leave the faith. And so the preacher comes on a Sunday morning and gives them a sermon, and he knows the perfect He knows the perfect medicine. He knows the perfect antidote for their struggle. He gives them Jesus. The book of Hebrews is simply this. Jesus is better. He's better than anything that could tempt you away, and he's worth enduring anything that could tempt you to leave him. Jesus is better. And he he was speaking to those who were coming out of Judaism, which Judaism is good. It was pointing to their Messiah. So all of the sacrificial system and life in the temple um, was a gift from God. The Jews had received the revelation of God, but it was all pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. And yet in their struggle, they were considering maybe we shouldn't follow Jesus as our Messiah. Maybe we should go back to the old way, the way we knew before. And so in this sermon, The whole book of Hebrews is the sermon to these struggling people, and he gives them Jesus. And just a little note on the pattern of how this sermon is preached. Um, The the preacher, throughout it, goes in and out of explanation and then exhortation. So explanation will go on for chapters, where he's diving in some of the deepest theological realities about Jesus, who he is, what he's done. And then... You know, you could almost, if you were imagining him preaching this, he's immersed in the book himself. You could see the preacher like this, just talking about Christ entering the holy places and what he's done. And then there are times consistently throughout the book where he stops and he looks at them and says, therefore, because of that, you must do. And he gives exhortation. He he directly addresses them in their lives. And, And that's what he does this morning. It's perfectly balanced um, in the text we'll look at this morning. Um, He's been in a series of explanation, and then he's going to turn. If you noticed our text, what was the word that began our text? Therefore, which means he's just explained something. So in light of that, you must do something to respond. Now, let me just say this by way of immediate application. Um, Some of us love the explanation passages because we love to muse on the deep theological profound realities of the gospel but may be tempted to leave it in our minds only. Friends, if you are one who is perfectly satisfied to delve into the depths of the realities of theology and scripture, but it does nothing to transform your life, that's a dangerous place to be. However, others of us want to zoom past those rich, complicated theological realities. And we just want something immediately practical. Give me five tips for how I can stop biting my nails, please. Just help, what do you, just give me some tips here. I want a better marriage, or I want to get married, you know. Um, Help me out, preacher. And, and we can easily run past the, the depth of explanation. Well, the, this preacher understands this reality that right doctrine, right theology, 
fuels right living. So he gives theology, and it's profound. Some of the most profound Christology, meaning the doctrines or teachings about Jesus in the entire Bible are found in this sermon. But then the preacher always turns around and does that Steve Lawson point at you and me and says, therefore you, in light of these realities, must live in this way. So he's always got you on his mind. He's a good preacher. It's effective. And so I want us to look at one of these therefore texts this morning. One where he's pointing at us in the audience. And we come to chapter 10, verse 19. But since chapter 8, verse 1, and really, if not for 8, verse 1, where there's a little bit of exhortation, go all the way back to chapter 4, 5, 6, 7. He's in the deep end of the swimming pool. I I mean, he's, he's taking us into the heart of the gospel reality. And he's giving us some deep, theology. For nearly three chapters, he does not address his audience. He's only discussing the theology of Christ and his work. He's caught up in it. But now he turns and he looks at us and says, therefore, brethren, all of what I've just said has great bearing on your life. So before we even get into the text, let me just say this. This might be helpful for some of you. The Bible is not a textbook to help you pass an annual doctrine exam. It's the light that illuminates your path in a dark world. It's meant to do something, to transform how you live. So, this sermon should affect immediately the five minutes after this sermon is done, and then the 25 after that, and then the 24 hours after that, because that's what the Word of God is for, to transform you. It's meant to produce something. The gospel has immediate implications for your life, and the preacher is about to show us what they are. But first, a bit of review. I have two points this morning. One, Review, colon, gospel doctrine. And then point two is going to be response, colon, gospel effects. I'm very aware of giving colons and telling you how my points are because uh, Lex, I don't know where Lex is, but she takes very detailed notes and they're beautifully done. So I'm just trying to help out you note takers. That's all it is. If you're not a note taker, leave it. So point number one, we'll look at review. And, and he does review some gospel doctrine. That's verses 19, 20, and 21. So let me read those again very quickly. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, and we'll pause there. He's going to say let us three times. Um, and we'll get to that. That's going to be the response. Because of this, let us do A, B, and C. But first, the preacher does give us a bit of review of what he's been teaching us so far. And, And notice that first clause. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Let's just pause there for a minute. What are the holy places? For Israel, the Israelites, 
the holy places were rooms in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And it was a physical place designated for the priests to take the sacrifices of the people and offer them to God. And so the temple or the tabernacle would have been arranged with an altar where you would sacrifice certain general sacrifices. And then there was a, pl- a room called the holy, uh, the, 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 holy um, the, place, the holy room. And then there was a third place or spot after the for, uh, foyer and then the first room called the holy of holies. And these rooms were physical places designated for certain sacrifices. And what it was was representing the presence of God. We know, as well as Israel does, that God is everywhere. And yet, God designated a physical place where he would dwell to meet with man and receive sacrifices from men on behalf of the people's sin. And he explains these rooms earlier in chapter 9. And we won't read the whole thing, but you could read the first seven verses or so And you'll see him explain the physical rooms that God set up where priests would offer sacrifices. But but I do want you to look at verse 7 of chapter 9 because he explains this holy of holies room, this special room in the back. And listen to what he says in chapter 9, verse 7. Into the second room, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay. There's a place called the Holy of Holies where God dwells, and only the high priest, the highest priest, goes in there, and he only once a year. And when he goes, he must have blood for the sins of the people. What is that about? Well, God was giving symbolic, physical representations to make a theological point to Israel. And the point was this. He is holy, and where he dwells, you cannot dwell. He is separate from you because he is holy. But he has made a way for you to enter his presence. And what is that way? You need a go-between. You need a mediator. You need a priest to, to represent you to God. He can go into God's presence, but only once a year on very specific circumstances, and he must have with him a sacrifice. In other words, you bring blood or else your blood is required. This is, the preacher is, is summing up the sacrificial system. This way that God provided for man to be, be brought back into right relationship with him through a sacrifice. It's, let me, th- this, is, this is the simplicity of it. Um, we sinned, God is holy, and our sin is so devastating and so, so wicked that it requires a death. And that death should be ours. But because God is merciful, he says to Israel... You can have an animal die in your place, and that will satisfy my justice against your sin. Now, for the Israelites, you could imagine, I mean, I know it's tough because we don't, we're not there at that time, but you could imagine 
how sacred that space would have been. And it, it was a sacred space. And it was a very, I mean, if you go back to Exodus and you see God establishing that space, the, the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, there's so many instructions for who can go in and when and what they must wear. And so there would have been a lot of intimidation and, and fear and trepidation about that space. Because not anyone can just roll up into that space. It's very particular who can go and when. And that was intentional from God. God was doing that to remind you, you can't just roll up on God. He is holy and you're not. And even if you don't take your sin seriously, God takes your sin seriously. And so this physical picture was given to Israel. And so, you know, let's say we went back and talked to an Israelite and we said, hey, uh, great, love the camp, love the manna. That was delicious. Can't wait for that again for dinner. Um, Can I get a tour of this tabernacle? Uh, Well, I I heard about the Holy of Holies. Can you take me in there? No Israelite is going to go, yeah, yeah, let's go. They, They would say, no, you don't go in there. There... There was no confidence for them to enter that space because that's where God dwells and I am not worthy. Now, the preacher's reminding them of that, but notice what he says back in verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places. What? How? Well, he says, by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Wait a minute. Now we have confidence to enter this holy place where God dwells. How is that possible? Well, because Jesus opened a new way for us. What is that way? Well, jot your eyes back again to chapter 9 and look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not the physical tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What did Jesus do? Jesus, as the greatest high priest, does not merely enter a physical room with a lamb. He soars into heaven and enters heaven itself and stands before God the Father and he presents himself as the go-between between sinners and a holy God. And when the question comes, where's the sacrifice? The response is, he is the sacrifice. He slaughtered himself, was slaughtered to pay for the sins of many. So Jesus has taken it to the next level. And what the preacher's trying to do here is show these, these Christians who had come from Judaism, Jesus is so much better. Your priests have to go into the, the tabernacle or the temple year after year, and they have to slaughter animal after animal. Jesus Christ gave himself once, and it was finished. And he didn't just go into a physical place. He soared into heaven to represent you to the throne of God. Do you realize, friend, what reality that is? In Jesus doing what he did, he takes you 
by name and takes you into heaven and says, okay, next account of sinner, let's go through their sins, start to finish. This is all they've said and all they've done. This is how they've gone astray and rebelled against you, oh, Father. This, is, this sinner is here, but I was slaughtered so that their sin would be put on me and my righteousness on them. Let them in. And standing before God as your representative, you're accepted. That's what the preacher's reminding them of. It's a beautiful reality. God made a way for his people to come near, be, come near to him and be restored in relationship to him. And that way is Jesus. This is the gospel. Jesus offering himself in the place of sinners. And now the preacher says, therefore, in light of this gospel, let us. And three times he says, let us. Look at the text. Look at uh, verse 21, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And then verse 24, let us consider how. So now for the rest of our time, we're going to look at point two, the response, gospel effects. What does the gospel do in our life? Because of this beautiful gospel, how should we respond? Well, in three ways. And the first is draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And implied in that, coming off the heels of these three chapters on Christ drawing near to God, it is drawing near to God. We're, we're, let us draw near to God. We're separated from God until Jesus. And, and why do we draw near? Well, draw near for what? Well, well everything that comes from being near God. Um, we draw near to him in worship. We draw near to him in prayer. But there's a really beautiful verse earlier in chapter 4 of Hebrews that I want you to look at. So turn back there just for a minute. What do we get when we draw near to God? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, great. So what? Well, verse 16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace. Friend, do you need mercy? We all need mercy. There's one reality that in our very divided world, every single person, even if they profess to deny it, every single person understands that they are broken and that they are guilty because God has put in every person a conscience. We all understand that we have done things to incur the just and right wrath of a holy divine God. And he says, you can now draw near with confidence to receive mercy and to receive grace. And uh, look at that in uh, verse 16, the, the confidence, the confidence with which you draw near. No Israelite would ever confidently walk into the Holy of Holies with their chest out and their chin up. I'm here, God. I'm here for the mercy. They'd be struck down. 
But now through Christ, it's yours. You enter the presence of God for mercy and grace. So let's go back to chapter 10 and look again at verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance or full confidence. A true heart, meaning a sincere, genuine heart. In, and, and assurance in confidence. And that confidence comes, he says, from your faith. The assurance of faith. Believing that Jesus did what he said he did. He has lived on your behalf and died for your sins, and he rose to conquer the grave so that you might live. Do you believe that? If the resounding response of your heart is yes, then friend, you can enter God's presence confidently. He did that for you. A few years ago, my wife and I went to the forum in Inglewood for uh, Kanye West's Sunday service. He had just released his album, Jesus is King. And uh, Ginger and I went, and uh, it, was, it was a fascinating experience. And at the end, um, he, he played a final song, uh, Jesus Walks. And the chorus in Jesus Walks, probably his most famous song, one of them, is, um, I, I want to talk to God, but I'm afraid because I haven't talked in so long. And it kind of repeats and repeats. I want to talk to God, but I'm afraid. And there in that uh, um, arena with 17,000 people, he, he was singing this chorus. And, and then as he got to the end, he changed the lyric, just kind of meditating on the reality. He said, I, I, I want to talk to God, but I'm afraid. I haven't talked in so long. And then he began to say, but I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore because I'm covered in the blood. I'm covered in the blood, and you can come and be covered in the blood. And in that moment, it was a beautiful picture of what a confidence in Christ's sacrifice does. Now, of course, it's, it's sad to see what's gone on in Kanye's life since then, but the reality stays true regardless, that we do not have to be afraid to come to God because we're covered in the blood. Jesus has paid it all. Right before this sermon, uh, our buddy Owen Guild, where you at, Owen? He's about to leave for Switzerland tomorrow, and so he gave me a little gift, um, and it was a tract. And I don't know if he was evangelizing me or, or what, but um, it says, Jesus paid it all, and it goes through all of the sin, shame, regret, lies, deceit, immorality, and it says, paid for. Your, your receipt, it's a little receipt, is zero. You owe nothing. It's a simple faith and a simple gospel, my friend, that Jesus Christ has done what you could never do. He paid the penalty you deserve. And so now, believing in him, with a full assurance of trusting in him, you can draw near to God. Notice what he says. Your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You might put on a good show at church and be the happy person but be writhing in the agony of a guilty conscience. Christ can wash that clean. He washes us by the pure water of salvation. You don't have to be afraid. You can enter the presence of God with confidence and assurance. That's an effect of the gospel. You can find mercy and grace, and we all need mercy and grace. The second effect of the gospel is to hold fast 
Look there in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We hold on to the confession of our hope. That's simply the gospel. We hold on to the reality of what Christ has done for us, and we hold on to it without wavering. We don't let go. Now, why is he talking about holding it without wavering. Because the people he's writing to were beginning to waver and they were beginning to doubt and to question and to think maybe life outside the walls of the church is better. And friends, I know that none of us in this room are first century proselyte Christians who've come from Judaism to Christianity. Nobody here. Simply because of your age. But there are some of you here who are wavering. And there are some of you here wondering, maybe life out there is better. And the gospels become white noise to you. And life in the church has lost its appeal. And you're beginning to think, maybe I just pursue the world and live it up and spend my years doing what I want to do and leave Christ behind me. That's where they were. And he says, don't waver. And what's the basis for him telling them not to waver? Well, we'll look at it. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In other words, if Jesus promised you eternal life, he's going to give you eternal life. If Jesus promised you victory over the grave, it's as good as done. That's why the scripture always talks about our glorification in the past tense. We've been glorified. I don't feel glorified, but it's as good as done. Because Jesus said it, he will do it. And you know, that's the basis of faith. Faith is so simple. I think we can sometimes complicate it. Do you want to know what saving faith is? It's just believing God. Believing what he said. That his saying is his doing. If he said it, he'll do it. Even if I don't see it yet, even if it doesn't feel like it, he's coming back, they, were, they thought he was coming back imminently any, any day, and they're going, where is he? Maybe he's not coming back. And the preacher goes, no, 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 no. He who said it is faithful. He's coming back. It's worth it all. Don't waver. I, I want to read you the story of a woman who exemplifies this so beautifully. Um, I was reading a book recently called Everything sad is untrue. And it's the story of a, a, a guy who, who, who moves here with his family from Persia. And he's like six years old when they moved to Oklahoma. So imagine the difference. And he writes his memoir, Everything Sad is Untrue, from his perspective as like a six or seven-year-old. And it's great. It's funny. Because he's trying to make sense of American life. And he's sitting there in school with like these snooty, you know, high school Oklahoma bullies making fun of everything he does. But he's looking at them going, you're the fool. What are you doing? It's really, it's really interesting. But about halfway through the book, he tells the story of why they're in Oklahoma and poor, having come from Persia, Iran, from wealth. And this is what he says. Ready for it? My mom was a Saeed from the bloodline of the prophet, Muhammad. 
In Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity or Judaism, it's a capital crime. That means if they find you guilty in religious court, they kill you. Probably nothing happens if you're just a six-year-old. Except if you say, I'm a Christian now in your school, chances are the religious committee will hear about it and raid your house. Because if you're a Christian now, then so are your parents, probably. And the committee does stuff way worse than killing you. When my sister walked out of her bedroom and told my mom that she met Jesus, my mom knew that. And here's the part that gets hard to believe. Seema, my mom, read about Jesus and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe that he was the one who died for you and she believed. When I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds and the walls. All the villages my grandfather owned, all of the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian, all the money she gave up, so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her, and she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa and even maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. Either that or my mom is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, she made a giant mistake. But she doesn't think so. She had all that wealth, the love of all those people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was a Saeed. And she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places where people hate refugees. With a husband who hits harder than a second degree black belt. Because he's a third degree black belt. And she'll tell you, it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why my mom converted since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're here hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can be certain she's dead wrong, but you can't make her agree with you because it's true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, the reality of encountering a Savior who has borne the wrath of God which rightly was falling on you. The reality of what Christ has done to stand in your place as a guilty, condemned sinner. 
It's worth giving up anything this world has to offer. And the preacher to the Hebrews is pleading with them, brothers, because of what he's done, hold fast. Don't let go. I know it's difficult. I know it's tempting. I know there's a road that looks easy, but the end is destruction. Friends, hold fast. He is faithful. He is true. He is coming again. Friends, the last effect of the gospel, we find it in verse 24. Consider others. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This last effect of the gospel. As a Christian, you are part of a family. And he says, because of what Jesus has done, consider others. That word consider, notice, means observe carefully, look at in a reflective manner. It has the idea of contemplation. So let's just pause for a minute. Do you consider others? Do you contemplate them? Do you think carefully about others? I think all of us would have to admit how selfish we can be. Even when it comes to the gospel. We have no problem with these first two effects of the gospel, do we? I get to draw near with confidence and receive everything I need from God. Mercy and grace and help and answered prayers. I love that result of the gospel. And I get to hold fast in spite of the storm because Christ is true and worth it. I like that. But even those two realities of the gospel are centered on me. But this third one, he says, in light of what Christ has done, contemplate Others. Consider carefully others. Do you consider those around you? And consider them for what? Well, how to stir one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. Encouraging one another. They needed to hear this because they were neglecting to meet together. They were starting to be seen less and less. Which is what happens when someone starts being tempted by the world, isn't it? Hey, where's so-and-so? Haven't seen him around so much. And so the preacher encourages them, consider one another. Now, wait a second. Let's be real for a minute. I've given you the context of these struggling Christians, right? They were in the middle of the battle, friends. They were facing persecution from the Romans. Later in this chapter, he'll remind them how they were beaten, some of them, and their property was stolen. They were facing persecution in the synagogue. They were being pushed out by their religious culture and people. So they were in the heat of the storm. And in the middle of the battle, the preacher has a message for them and says, because of the gospel, think about others. Wait a moment. I'm struggling. I need to think about me. That's not what he says. Consider others. 
This isn't natural. So often we believe the lie that I need to take care of myself before I can love and serve others. I need self-love. I need more self-love and self-care. I need to pamper me, and then I can be of use to you. We've become so self-centered, friends. In the midst of the storm, we're called to look out and care for others. Now, this wasn't always the case for them. Go to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 32. He reminds them, recall the former days after we're enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. But listen to this. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you yourselves knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. What happened to them in those early days? They joyfully embraced the trouble, and in the midst of their own persecution, they were concerned with how others were doing, and they reached out in love to serve, even as they were being beaten down for their faith. And friends, that is supernatural grace, and that is an effect of the gospel, that we become so others-centered, having been set free from the selfishness that enslaved us, so that even whilst we are enduring hardship and persecution, our thought is to come and gather together in the community of faith and care for and love those around us. That's the effect of the gospel. Friends, it's all over the Bible once you realize it. You look at the Corinthians who in 2 Corinthians 8 were in the dregs of poverty. And Paul says, even as you were going deeper into poverty, you began giving more and more generously. What is that? That's the supernatural grace of the gospel. A concern and a care for others. You look at Stephen being stoned to death. And what are his dying words? A concern for those with the stones in their hands. Father, Forgive them. Do not hold this against them. And that shouldn't surprise us because the champion of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, isn't that how he lived? Entered this world not to be served, but to serve, even if it meant hanging on a cross. And so, friends, the preacher encourages the believers who are struggling not to isolate, not to insulate and isolate themselves in the midst of their struggle, but to look outward, to care for others. A desire to invest in others, to stir them up to love, to good works, encouraging one another, and collectively looking to the day that is drawing near, that day when Christ will return And every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Death will be no more. And we will live with our Savior forever in glory. So, what happens when you trust in Jesus? I wonder what you would tell a little five-year-old girl who asked you. Let's pray. Father, help us to find hope and peace and joy from your words And may we all, Lord, come to know you and to love you more with a greater affection for what you've done. And may we see the effect of your gospel in our lives. Help us, Lord, to not be the one who hears but doesn't do. 
and walks away and immediately forgets what he hears. But help us to be those who are transformed by your word, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.